think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is the Boys in Short Pants, episode 20, the 21st episode. Why do we even do episode numbers? Eh, I don't know, it's fun. Anyway, uh, a lot of news happened Holy over the last like, week. God, yeah. it's been the busiest week in Canadian politics. It's been pretty nuts, and I was away yeah. all weekend in Sudbury, and I, we couldn't record, so... Uh, it's been so, so busy. But, like, every day has been insanity. But today is even... Actually, there's ongoing news right now, and the Nova Scotia election is still... Like, the votes are still being counted, so we'll give you guys a little update on that. The where? The, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Etienne is a Westerner and disdains uh, the folk of the sea. I, I do not. They're very lovely folk. Just most of them have come to Alberta, in my experience. Oh, they brought Mary Browns with them, so what are you complaining about? <laughs> I heard Mary Browns from Calgary. I've never been quite clear it's on this. It's from Newfoundland. Yeah, it is. Anyway, uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is probably the uh, most uh, exciting part of our agenda today, and that's uh, changes that the Liberals are making to the Budget Implementations Act with regard to PBO. Yes. Which is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, or the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer, rather. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so, Etienne, uh, basically, uh, Etienne had an interview a couple weeks ago with uh, uh, Professor Geneviève Tellier at the University of Ottawa, who uh, gave us some background and analysis on what was going on with this, so you can feel free to go listen to that if you're curious about what the changes they were proposing were. Uh, I don't think it's worth going over them again in too much detail. No. Um, as, as we're strapped for time here, yeah. I, I think we'll keep this one pretty high level. Um, suffice it to say, the Liberals are now uh, walking back some of the changes proposed to the PBL. Um, they were criticized sort of for claiming in their platform to wanting to make them more independent. Well, in the actual act itself, um, it seems that they were making the office like a tiny bit more independent, but also restricting what they could do yeah. and sort of limiting them in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. It seems like, and based on some of the comments by uh, liberal MPs like Greg Fergus, that their intent was sort of like, it came out wrong. That the legislation that they oh, forwarded, they didn't really understand the implications of it. And once there was, you know, the public discussion and the witnesses and everything that they sort of came to regret their, um, their legislation... And so they've amended it, so kudos to them on that. Um, if, if you want to look through it in depth, I, I fully encourage you to. Uh, we're not going to go through all the changes, but most of them are pretty satisfactory. Yeah. Um, all right, so move, moving on from that item. Uh, I think that's the quickest we've ever covered. Yeah, wow, that was very fast. Holy crap. Uh, we're getting efficient. Uh, the conservative leadership was this weekend, uh, with a little bit of a surprise twist in that the uh, person who was expected to win did not. Uh, I, w- I was watching as, as it was going on uh, agonizingly over a ton of time. Uh, Etienne, do you want to you give us your impressions as a person who actually voted in that race? So, yes, as a person who voted in it, I will. Uh, I guess I can discuss who I voted for. I have no, uh, no hesitations there. Um, but first of all, just to talk about the process writ large, I think the, the race overall was very successful. I think day of the uh, um, it was very well executed that the style of ballot they chose and the way they rolled it out and the production value of it yeah. was all like top notch I had quality. one quibble and we'll come back to it okay yeah um, so I, I thought overall it was fairly good I thought the numbers in terms of participation um, were fairly strong the new memberships all the campaigns were able to fundraise a significant amount of money so I think the takeaway here is that the Conservative Party is, you know, still in a strong position. Strong and stable, you could say. Strong, stable, national, conservative, yeah. national, not quite majority government. Yeah. Um, so I, I walk away from the whole process fairly happy. To talk about the results, um, so I think the, the ballots proved to be rather interesting, the way it sort of worked out. The ballots were very complicated because of the combination yeah. of the point system, the geography. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just glad that the Conservative Party has enough respect for its members to give them such a complicated voting system. <laughs> I mean, that, that being said, there were a lot of problems with voting. Um, people having to send in their IDs and put in different ballots, and a lot of people didn't mark all the different ballots. I, I for one, I don't think I know anyone who filled out 10 spots in their ballots. Um, 
So listen, the voting system's not perfect, but for anyone looking to draw easy, quick comparisons to the federal voting system, I think it's really important to note that you know these are completely different processes and what you're trying to balance in one election is not the same for another. The voting system you use to select what restaurant you go to with your friends should not necessarily correspond with the voting system that you use to elect your prime minister. In that you're going to have one dinner rather than 338 dinners. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I find there's a lot of false comparisons between the two of them. And you're not trying to balance geography no, just, in the same way yeah, it, and history in the same way. I get that. Like, well, yeah, yes and no. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. In that rural seats sort of get like a disproportionate amount of influence in even the general elections. But whatever. And you're not, you're not balancing numbers. Yeah. And th there's all sorts of... Well, there's a weird, there's there. a weird points system, also the conservative one that would be like atrocious if we had that in the real world. But yeah, anyway. Um, but yes, as to sort of pseudo electoral, electoral you, college, you, you've walked around it. I've walk, walked around. Who was okay. on your ballot, Etienne? Um, so who was on my ballot? Let's just say he was disappointed early. Where? Yeah, where's the drum roll? <laughs> okay. So understanding how the system works, I'm going to explain this. If you voted for any of, say, the bottom five candidates. You could be pretty sure, or even the bottom like eight, that your vote was going to get redistributed fairly early on, um, as long as your vote got redistributed before a winner was picked. Then it went to whoever sort of the ballot sat with. For that reason, I was pretty confident throwing my first round vote to uh, Deepak O'Brien. Woo! Just thought I I, I appreciated him in the race, um, although his French was a little lackluster. I I enjoyed his participation. And frankly, there was nothing to lose by voting for Deepak first, um, because I knew he was going to end up in the last three spots, and that ballot would have inevitably go towards someone else. So Deepak was my number one. Uh, number two was Mr. O'Toole. I thought O'Toole came out with a pretty comprehensive policy package. I thought he was, in the general, very electable. Um, very nice guy. Have heard nothing but good things about him. And uh, great track record, did a good job at Veterans Affairs, personally has a pretty compelling story. Um, a combination of all of those things, he got vote number two. Vote number three went to Shear, uh, Andrew Shear. This one was um, partly strategic. I, I have heard great things about Shear, I don't know him personally. Um, I'm a little on the Fence with his policy. <laughs> um, and we've discussed his policies in the past. His package this time around sort of involved country of origin labeling on gasoline, uh, defunding universities that don't protect free speech. Is there anything else? There, there are some. Let's not get into his policies. They've all been removed from his website, he, so uh, that's not as big of a deal as people are making it out. No, to I be. know. It's, it's not just, like it's the, just funny. The internet never forgets. Like. Quickly, quickly, hide the evidence. Like, I mean, this isn't you, a real thing. If you want to know, you can go check our back catalog. It's all there. Back catalog, or you can find it in, like, the Wayback Machine or one of a billion other yeah. places. At any rate, it was not exactly very compelling in terms of a, of a vision of a... So the, the thing to keep in mind is generally during leadership races, the pol you're not... It's a different policy platform than a general election policy no, and I, platform. I, I totally understand. We were talking about this actually before we were recording, but um, it, it's not so much that like this stuff is, is dumb in isolation, which like it is, but that's kind of neither here nor there. It's just that like I think what leadership policy packages are kind of meant to do is to communicate a vision of what Canada would look like if you were in power for five to ten years. Uh, and I think with sheer... I feel like you're going to knock that stuff out in the first month or so for the stuff that's actually achievable, uh, which some of it isn't. Uh, but I didn't get a sense from Shear's policy offerings that there was a coherent vision beyond sort of like targeting the slices of the conservative base he needed to get over the line, which given the closeness of the result may have been the smart path for him to take. I just... I'm a little worried that he's going to struggle to sort of communicate a vision because he didn't do it during the leadership. So let me push back on that a little bit. I think uh, in terms of interpreting Shear's platform, I think what you have to look to is less so the specific policies and more so his broader message. But that's what I'm saying. I don't think there was a broader message. Yes, there was. He was like very forthcoming with it. It was effectively Harper Light. 
Well, yeah, he, but he Harper, said this but that's time the thing, and time again. Is Harper barely had a vision by the end, right? Harper by the end was basically just like tax credits, miniature flags, and like saying mean things about Russians Mi- and mini- ISIS. Miniature like, flags. Yeah. Well, the patriotism stuff. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Oh. Uh, but it was just basically it was pandering by the end. Right, and I think that's what that's what the sheer agenda right now is continuity with. It's with pandering Harper. It's not with sort of like CCC Harper when he was like a policy wonk who put together interesting stuff about like his vision for Canada. So I would disagree with that. Um, it's probably best expressed, or one of the, one of the sort of more comprehensive ways that sort of explains Harper's vision is. Um, Paul Wells, yeah, the, the longer, longer prime, prime minister. minister. I love that book; it's great. Where it talks about Harper's approach of incrementalism. Yeah. Of uh, the best way to introduce conservative yes. policy over the long run is to take a very slow and yes. very deliberative approach, and to be in government for a long time. Yeah. As opposed to sort of Mulroney, yeah. who went too quickly. But you know what? <coughs> I, I think I think Wells. I think that was Harper's analysis. I just think Harper's analysis was wrong in the sense that by the end of his his mandate in government. He was leading a government that was basically rudderless beyond looking for the next photo op. Um, so, I mean, look, this is my take as a, as a partisan New Democrat. You can take it for what it's worth. I just think that... Nothing. That's, nothing. That, <laughs> that style lends itself to to a government that, you know, so, does okay and then peters out. So when you pair incrementalism of doing small changes over long periods with other measures designed for partisan or electoral politics, the two definitely do get muddied. Yeah. Uh, if you're doing, you know, the uh, home renovation tax credit. Yeah, that was... At the same time, you're doing other, like, long-term conservative vision things. It's very easy for you to get those two stirred together and end up with sort of confusion as to well, what yeah, the long-term goal is. Well, yeah, and also, like, just the reality of, like, going in there every day is that, like, if you're being incrementalist, like all the stuff you really want to do is almost always going to just end up on the back burner because you're going to be in there like, okay, what can we do like now to sort of like get the media cycle working for us, et cetera. And you're going to lose sight of what your actual vision was. I think, and like, that's my analysis of what happened to Harper. I think it Chan disagrees, but that's fine. And I, I just, I worry that sheer by basically taking like his policy package was just pure pandering uh, to the sort of aid of the base in some ways, so I don't... Freud, Freudian reference Yes, there. I don't think it represented really a vision for what conservative leadership and government looks like beyond, like, saying mean things about environmentalists and hippie campus people. So I'll just reiterate my point here, um, which is to say that I think by connecting himself to Harper, and I think he was one of the only candidates to really do yeah, this that's clearly, probably true. And it probably is one of the major contributing factors to why he won is because, like, there wasn't a lot of discontent in the conservative base with Harper. Harper was very well respected yep. towards the end, and there were jokes and rumors that Harper would run again sort yeah. of thing. That, Of course, everyone, like, there was a certain segment of the party that wanted that, but obviously... There, that was not going to happen. There are very legitimate reasons for why that couldn't be the case. Yeah. Um, so I think Scheer did very smart things by connecting himself to the Harper... Or to yeah. the, Har- to the yeah. Harper movement and Harper conservatives, and that probably more than anything is what drove him over the I edge. I think I think you're right. Where if you're looking for a brand to tie yourself to in the conservative party, tying yourself to the Harper brand, yeah, is a winning strategy. See, the really important qualifier in that sentence was in the, in the conservative, conservative party. party. So uh, on that note, I want to talk about a couple of people who lost. Sure. I want to talk about Aaron O'Toole. Yes. I want to talk about uh, Michael Chong. I want to talk about Brad Trost. Jesus. Any, and I want, to talk, else? I want to talk about Mad Max. Pierre Lemieux? Is Pierre no, Lemieux on there? No, Brad? No, uh, that's it. Just uh, all right. Mad Max. Okay. What, what do you want to talk about? Tell uh, me. Aaron O'Toole. Mansplain to me about your... Uh, Aaron, Aaron O'Toole. Or Dipper, Dipper-splain to me. Aaron O'Toole was your guy. Not just your guy and that you... you, you start, he was your real first pick. Sorry, Deepak. Um, but I... Like, Deepak, watching him don't, at the... Don't con- listen to him. <laughs> you were always my first choice. <laughs> I, I was watching the convention, and I, I had not heard of Aaron O'Toole at the beginning, just because, you know, I'd sort of forgotten what, you know, who filled every spot in the, the later Harper cabinets. But Aaron O'Toole at the convention came off as, like, a normal human with normal human priorities who seemed like he had his head screwed on straight and, like, 
was, had a cute family and like was generally personable very up seemed nice in a way that like sheer doesn't Sheer's want. very no, nice. i'm sure he's a nice guy but like he doesn't come off as in the same like just like i don't know maybe it's because i like the things sheer stand for kind of disgust me but like o'toole to be honest really seems to me like he was the guy to actually be like very competitive in a general election i don't know you know take that for what it's worth uh, I, I think you guys may have, have missed your call on this one. but So one of the questions and one of the tensions within the Conservative Party broadly and sort of a mistake that a lot of people outside of the Conservative Party make is thinking that the Conservative Party can abandon certain segments of its base. Yeah, no, and this is and the same mistake people, people make about the NDP too. These people will vote for them regardless because who else are they going to vote for? Right. And the answer is always... They won't they vote. Won't vote. Yeah. Or they'll have a Christian Heritage Party or something for that, like, buff-toothed yeah. guy that runs everywhere. Throw it away or what have you. So the question is, if you have... Say you were to pick a conservative candidate who is fiscally conservative and socially liberal. My favorite expression. So, yeah, yeah, I know. You love it. Yeah. It's and socially the, progressive. The problems are bad. The causes are good. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> and, like... Just completely shuns the social conservative side of the party. Yeah. No, I understand that's not feasible, and that was why Michael Chong wasn't feasible. That is not feasible. Yeah. There are going to be a lot of seats that are going to turn yeah. in historically... Saskatoon University, they lose. In like historically conservative areas yeah. without that. So the conservative party is still a coalition, Yeah. and people need to remember that, that it's still a coalition between... Yeah disparate groups yeah. it is still a reasonably broad tent yes as much as people like to say like well it's a tiny tent it doesn't like it no, doesn't you're matter totally you, right. you only have to cater to one group of i people. don't That's disagree with true. your analysis here at all my uh, to bridge in michael chong a little bit because you basically made the point i wanted to make about him is that michael chong was way too far for those people like that was just not going to happen that w- they were not going to vote for this guy and that's that's fine i think michael chong like i have my own issues with him but um you know, the, the fact that he's a media darling and, you know, like, just that kind of thing just really bugged me about him. Um, but, like, O'Toole doesn't seem to me to be as, like, offensive to the base in the same way that Chong was. Yeah, so less so. It's, yeah. it's shades of gray, he of He seems more like a, a mostly a Harper continuity guy, but in a less in-your-face way to the sort of voters that the Conservative Party does actually need to win over. Uh, he would have been a little like yeah I think I think like him and Sheer are kind of in the same ballpark but I just think O'Toole was you know the much stronger shortstop. Yeah, Bob I, Silver, if you're listening, <laughs> learned about baseball. <laughs> I I also think O'Toole, um, at least for the campaign, put together a strong, if not the strongest, policy package. Oh yeah. Um, he invested obviously a lot of time and resources into it. And then towards the end, he was getting a lot of conservative endor- or a lot of caucus endorsements, including uh, from my boy Gerald Deltel, who is my favorite conservative MP. He is a lot of people's favorite. He's awesome. MP. I just really like the guy. I'm gonna make the prediction for whenever the next race is. I bet you Gerard Deltel uh, one one day. Oh yeah, runs for conservative. He leader. should. He. I mean, he. Well, he's already been a opposition leader in Quebec. Not yeah, just of the like, the CAC. ADQ. Oh, ADQ. And then they turn into the CAC. Yeah, yeah it's all they merge, thing. but whatever, same thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I actually really like that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yeah, Aaron O'Toole is picking up very high-profile endorsements, had a good policy package. But yeah, that, that's what I want to say about Aaron O'Toole. I just think you guys missed your call and wanted to get on, on the record so I can pull this episode out in three years and be like, huh, so you told you. Anyway, um, so we've already talked Michael Chong. That I made my point. Who else was on your list? Brad Trost. What do you want, you want very, to talk about Very Bradley? surprised he made it to four. Though Bradley. I'm, yeah, the, he was my MP for, for some time. Uh, yeah. I despised him and still do. Uh, I think he sucks, so that's on the record too. Aren't there photos of you volunteering for the Brad Trost campaign somewhere on the internet? I would be very surprised if that were the case. (laughs) I mean, the sleepwalking exists, I suppose. But um, I remember he spelled a Mulcair wrong in a piece of campaign literature during the 2015 election. It's funny. Anyway, I called him about it. Um, You called him about it. I was feeling petty. Did you get Brad on the phone? I did not. I just left a message. You left a message on it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That that Um, got promptly deleted. Oh, almost certainly. Uh, doesn't matter. At any rate, uh, I was just surprised he did as well as he did. Considering That's very that he's, friendly uh, of you, letting them know the typos that they Well, created. it wasn't that friendly of voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, it, I was surprised he made it so far. In a sense, it's not surprising, in that, you know, the, the sort of ballot trickle-up does what it, it does, and that will happen if, if it sort of coalesce around one social conservative candidate. 
I'm, I I think a lot of people were surprised that there were enough social conservatives to get Brad Trost, of all people, into fourth place in that race, in, ahead of some, you know, stronger contenders in many ways. In um, terms of social conservative No, just in terms of, like, people who, like, are normal and have their heads screwed down straight. So I think when you look at the breakdown... Okay, there's a couple things to consider. Um, but, like, Pierre Lemieux, right, like, did fairly well as well. He did, and a lot of the pre-polling, for what it's worth... So Lemieux was doing better than Trost. Yeah, that's kind of what surprised always me. surprised me. Yeah, but I think Trost really scooped up a lot of support. Whoops, uh, just dropped something. Scooped up a lot of support in uh, like heavily Chinese areas. That's what the the map sort of indicated. So for me, Trost, because of how much more outspoken he was than Lemieux. Oh yeah, made him the natural front He's runner never been shy. for the social conservatives because. He was just more known. He was in the media more. He was in the news more. He was being covered more. Well, and he's still because in of his controversial positions. Yeah. Where Lemieux, although sharing social conservative values, isn't as outspoken. Is actually rather soft spoken by comparison. National media doesn't know him as well. And so nothing coalesced around him. Yeah. Um. So sort of natural that he fell behind Trost as as the vote sort of came in. Um. In terms of Trost doing as well as he did. I think it's important to remember, like, there was, what, a little over a quarter million um, Conservative Party members. Yeah. And within this type of race, if you have a demographic that is very, very politically active, they can have a disproportionate amount of influence on the process. Um, unions do that in the NDP. Yeah. In the Conservative... Not as much anymore, but... Well, actually, yeah, no, still. They well, just don't have, like, a special weighting anymore. Yeah, frankly, carry on, in, carry on. in the NDP or in the uh, PC party in Alberta, when, like, Alison yeah. Redford and some of these people ran, getting the union vote and the public employees behind you represents a significant demographic yeah. that can swing these uh, elections rather easily. Yeah. And so Brad getting, you know, a substantial amount of a quarter million people yeah. and making it to fourth place, getting, like, I don't know what his final vote count was at the end of it after... It was like a... Nine, nine yeah, ballots like in. He was at 10, 15%. Yeah. So, I mean, getting 15% of a quarter million people after four ballots or after nine ballots... Yeah. Like, obviously there are people who went social conservative, um, but in terms of the broader, the 30% of Canadians who vote for the Conservative Party... There's sort of a tension there as to like how that translates to the general election sure. and how much and how carefully you need to balance these things. I would note that in the uh, the House, so the House has come back for the past two days. Yeah. And Sheer has been in the front row, of course, doing the party leader thing. And then all the other candidates have been in the front bench, with two exceptions. Yeah. Brad Trost and Deepak O'Brien. Aww. Deepak. Sorry, Deepak. That's understandable. Brad Trost is actually Getting more exiled. surprising. Yeah, that is surprising. Because people were asking, actually, in the aftermath of that vote, like, oh, wow, that must be a promotion for Brad Trost. But apparently he's not super popular in caucus either. No, he's so, not. He's uh, actually... Not popular in caucus, you <laughs> yeah. could say. So, yeah, no, it's not super surprising. But anyway, that, that's just the point I wanted to make about Brad Trost. is like social conservative strength in that kind of election is... But people... So, to just, to just finish that point, people were speculating, oh, Brad Trost got fourth in the leadership race. Does that mean he will get, like, automatic cabinet position if uh, we form government at some point soon? And I think that's sort of reflected in the bench positions right now as to sort of where uh, where loyalties are and sort of how people are, uh, how standings are matching up. Yeah. So uh, the last guy I want to talk about is uh, poor Mad Max. Maxime. And this is actually the point I wanted to make earlier also about... Um, the one thing in the staging I didn't like was that in the last five minutes before they announced the final winner, they announced the final winner because it was pretty clear looking at Mad Max's face that uh, he was not celebrating. So what, what it is, is they were, they were on the final ballot and they pulled the candidates into the back room. They should have kept them there. To Yeah, they probably should have kept them there. Um, they called them to the back room to let them know who won so they yeah. could like sort of plan out how they're going to do this and prepare the speech and sort of mentally prepare for the result. Yeah. Um, and then they got sent back out. Yeah. 
And then Mad Max is looking like his fucking puppy died. (laughs) Had to sit for like five to ten minutes. It was excruciating. Oh my god. Uh, As speculation was rampant, I think um, it leaked out a little bit too. I think John Barron had a uh, congratulatory tweet up before. Yeah, promptly. um, Shear's website came down to the thank you page before, although that might have just happened anyways. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of speculation and a lot of, like, Shear was pacing around, like, with a sort of neutral face on while Max Yeah, he had a much better poker face than, uh, I'd rather play poker with Bernier, we'll put it that way. (laughs) Was sitting Uh, looking sort of grumpy in his chair. Yeah, sort of, he looked downcast. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, God, I can only imagine how, like, I I understand the experience of losing a, like, 30 or a 60 day campaign. Imagine losing an eight month campaign that you thought you were going to win... And you were on first place Dude. for like thirteen ballots. Like I'm, I'm really hoping I do not have to cope with that reality. Anyway. Heartbreaking. Um, also, um, Bernier, just w- uh, the last, the, the last days. Like we got to talk about his like week long reverse Fuhrer bunker. Uh, in the sense that, like they were, they were planning that parade. They were the Toronto Maple Leafs fans of this conservative leadership race. Um. And, okay, once again, I think a theme in this show is that if you're a staffer, you shut up, and you just stay out of the limelight, you do your job, you keep your head down, you make your boss look good, you don't make yourself look good. Uh, I want to say, because I think it tends a little more reticent, uh, <laughs> that the guy who, one of the guys who's running uh, Bernie's campaign did not follow this rule, and I think made a lot of people mad. Uh, in the last minute, because uh, for context, they, they had an interview with this guy. Uh, I don't remember his name. It's Welsh sounding. Whatever you guys can look it up. <laughs> he, has, he has a dumb haircut, um, and he uh, Kibiski came out and and this is also in the context of O'Leary's people joining the the Mad Max team that they were getting paid these absurdly high salaries because of course it turns out Kevin O'Leary is a terrible manager. Uh, who could have possibly have guessed that he was an awful businessman with no sense of the value of money. Um, but they had taken on this like in- incredible payroll bloat because of all these O'Leary goons. And then uh, this guy kind of comes out and says, oh yeah, they're getting paid a lot, but we're going to have the first run of the good jobs. And like you could just hear the like entitlement dripping from it. I think that might have rubbed people the wrong way. That's fine if you don't want to comment. No, That's I, I okay. Was, I was just thinking about what I, what I was going to say, and what I want to loop it back to. So this was uh, an interview in iPolitics, I believe, with Janice Dickinson. I might get that name slightly wrong. The interviewer. Rather. What, yeah. was, was the journalist who reported yeah. the story for iPolitics. Um, and frankly, what it comes back to is something we've talked about before, which is one of the principles of when to take interviews and when not to is sort of what strategic objective is being served. Yeah, exactly. And the strategic objective of taking an interview to brag about... How sweet your gig is going to be. Your job and how you've merged your party is like a couple days before and how like these people are getting paid too much and sort of just all this weird background context. Yeah. It's just bad. Super bizarre. Yeah, don't do that. Super bizarre. I'd like... You're in the final push. You should be doing work. <laughs> well, work or the last things you can to make your campaign like go off on a great note. Yeah. And doing interviews with staffers in 0% of like my statistical modeling <laughs> is the correct choice. Yeah, fair enough. Like, also, never, never, never should you do staffer interviews until you're like out of government. Yeah. The bizarre last day fundraising email too, which is basically like you should get on Bernier's friends list if you wanna, and if you know it's good for you, was also probably it came out a little goonish. Anyway, I'm just happy as always that libertarianism was defeated in the end by its own hubris, arrogance, and inability to actually manage anything. Uh, so there we go. And that is dipper splaining of conservatism. Yeah, there you go. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, oh, also my one also favorite subplot is a. Uh, Etienne's gonna get mad at me for saying this. Andrew Shear keeps talking about Rana Ambrose's feet, and it's the funniest thing in the world. I'm really happy that Andrew Shear is a foot guy. So uh, I, I hope that just becomes a real. This, this isn't a thing. This, a real this thing. Isn't, this isn't. I, I really want to make it a thing. This, is, this isn't a thing. It's gonna be great. Okay, uh, moving on. Official language is commissioner. Wow, what a downgrade. Wow, this is a lot less sexy of a topic. I know, right? Than feet, absolutely. 
We're all also a foot god. Yeah, not really. Not my thing. Um, so, Madeline Mayer. Uh, so this is like pretty inside baseball because I cannot imagine the constituency of people who care about who the official languages commissioner is. is very broad. Um, so, the, the context here is the official language commissioner is one of a handful of officers of parliament. Officers of parliament are considered, like, semi-sacred in, yeah. in terms of, like, Ottawa bubble yeah. politics, which is to say that they're supposed to serve all of parliament and they're supposed to be reasonably neutral and reasonably objective. Yeah. Madeleine Mayer is a former liberal uh, provincial cabinet minister in Ontario, and the liberal government federally have appointed her or suggested her, I'm not sure if the appointment's been completed, as the um, official languages commissioner. The problem with this, of course, is that she's a liberal partisan. Yeah. Which is pretty gauche and uncharacteristic. Yes. For a officer of parliament Well, the thing is, if you're going to appoint someone who is a partisan, you appoint someone from another party. From another party, right? I think there's one other instance where a partisan was appointed, but they've been out of partisan politics for like 10 plus years. Yeah, and that's fine. Um, but someone who has been active as recently as a few years ago, slash is still donating, donating to the party, yeah. is very gauche. There's also backstory about how the interview process went down, and about Madeline meeting with like Trudeau's chiefs of staff, or uh, chief of staff and principal secretary as part of the interview process, but only for her. And she'd also been bounced from a Senate appointment because she was deemed as too partisan through the independent. Yes. I, I use I yes. use quotes on the independent. He's doing the finger quotes. Independent process uh, for senators now, and so guess what? We're going to bounce you from the independent Senate process, and instead we're going to appoint you to a position that should be much more objective to serve all parliamentarians, which is an officer of parliament yeah. position. So which is bad. We don't like it. I which which we, is we bad. Agree. We, yeah. Um, that being said, the official languages commissioner isn't the like the most important officer of parliament. No. Like, the amount that they spar with MPs is, like, fairly limited. I mean, like, who would it be? Like, information, maybe? Because you're doing all those A-tips? I don't know. Well, they, they basically, in my experience, the information commissioner just scolds ministers or MPs when they, like, speak French too often or, like, think that... Not actually. Um, we got a report done... Um, on our office, some, something along these lines, uh, by the information commissioner, because someone had complained that my minister was tweeting in French too often. And I, if for those of you who don't know Stephen Blaney, he is a more or less unilingual francophone. Correct. Yes. And so he was tweeting in French too often, and the so I guess was it from the ministerial account? There weren't ministerial oh, accounts. Well, never mind then. That's ridiculous. Um, under under the Liberal government, there are distinct ministerial accounts run quasi by the public service, as well as partisan yeah. minister accounts. Yeah. Previously, this didn't exist, and the ministers' accounts were the ministers' personal accounts. Yeah. Um, and so the the determination. This is ultimately what was in the report was that these are not official communication channels of the government. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they don't have to be bilingual. Gotcha. Like, it makes no sense that MPs or ministers using their personal accounts would have to, like, Instagram in both official languages. Like, that would be silly. Like, it's ridiculous. Yes. So, anyways, the, the short version of it is Commissioner wrote up a little report saying, like, you use French too often, but this isn't really a problem because it's a personal account, but I encourage you to use English more often. Thank you. That's like, very helpful. Like, great. Okay. So, I, I mean, this, the the significance of the role here isn't something that upsets me. It's more the precedent of it. And I think this precedent is a lie, like, is sort of concerning with the liberals, where the liberals have done some partisan appointments to PCO as well, which is supposed to be a nonpartisan body, supposed to be the public service. Yeah. The, Though PCO has always been in a weird position. Not okay. always. No, well, if, okay, for the last 40, 50 years. No, no, less than that. Okay, 40 years. Since, just say it, just, just say it, since Trudeau. Since, so, since yeah. Trudeau. So, yeah. the, the backstory here is uh, PCO, Privy Council Office, is the department that yeah. serves the Prime Minister. We, we should we should do this, we should do, we should, this deserves its own episode. It, it will, yeah. but I'm going to explain, okay. I'm going to do the cliff notes here, just because. Okay. 
So the department that serves the minister and its public service, so it's supposed to be fiercely independent and it's supposed to serve all governments. Yes. That being said, the highest position of PCO, the clerk of the Privy Council, has always been a quasi-partisan position. Not partisan in the traditional sense, but partisan as in... You find someone you can work with. As in, like, very distinctly appointed by the prime minister of the day. Because they have to work very closely with them. You're meeting with the clerk almost as much as you're meeting with your chief of staff if you're the prime minister. Absolutely. It needs to be someone you can get along with and trust. And so it's someone typically drawn out of the senior levels of the civil service that you've either built a relationship with over the years or you feel like you can trust and he he or she is your your person. Yeah. Um, Under Trudeau Sr., this changed... With the appointment of... Our old friend of our old friend, uh, Michael Pitfield. Michael Pitfield. Who is uh, Tom Pitfield of Canada 2020's uh, father. So correct. We've mentioned this before, I think. But. Yeah, correct. So he was a 30-something-year-old with very little federal government experience, and he very much broke the mold yeah. of what the clerk of the Privy Council office was supposed to be. Yeah. When Joe Clark came in afterwards, Joe Clark dismissed Pitfield immediately... And then when Trudeau came in afterwards... Brought him right back in. Brought him right back in. Yeah. And this sort of broke the mold of PCO as supposed to... As, yeah. as like, super independent. And then we're seeing this again with yeah. Trudeau, who has done very similar things, appointing partisan types. Yeah, well, Warnick himself is not, not entirely partisan. I'm not but yes, you're Warnick. right. It's that he's bringing in people with a bit more of a partisan edge to them. Yeah, the, the number one that jumps out here is uh, Matthew Mendelssohn. Who's brought in? Who's been brought in as the deputy secretary for cabinet? And although he does have some history in PCO and has sort of worked in yeah. the the public think tank sector, he's still seen as a fairly partisan yeah. liberal appointment. And he's kind of the deliverology guru. guru yeah. Yes, we should have a talk about deliverology sometime. We absolutely will. Yeah, that that would be fun. Um. Oh yeah, this, that I do want to do that. Okay. Uh. So that that's I think what we want to do for for that whole segment. I think we're, think we're good on that. Yeah. yeah Anything I, else? Okay, cool. Absolutely. So the, the big news today, we're recording this, uh, whatever day this is of the week, Monday? Is this Monday? I have no idea. Tuesday. Anymore. Okay, Tuesday. I've been very busy, guys. It all runs together. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tuesday afternoon. Um, well, yesterday on Monday, that was yesterday, definitely, that I remember. Get some sleep, Jesus. Uh, the, the liberals, not the liberals, the other guys, the NDP and the Greens in British <laughs> Columbia... Uh, decided that they were gonna they were gonna give this old governing thing a shot. Yeah, sort of contrary to our predictions and sort of every hint that was dropped along the way, it would seem that the NDP and the Greens have opted to form a coalition. In a sense, this is this is the outcome that makes sense if you were an observer who had not been watching very closely and is only confusing if you got very deep into the the Byzantine. Uh, like criminal criminology of who likes who and etc. But yeah, yeah, it's sort of it's sort of the forest from the trees sort of. Yeah, exactly. Problem. Well, you know, that's okay. Um, where if you were reading the breadcrumbs, then you would think that they were going liberal. Um, but sort of the stories coming out from the negotiating table are that when the Greens sat down with the NDP, they would talk for hours and hours and hours, and the Liberals and the Greens would only have sort of cursory meetings and couldn't really get into the into the weeds yeah and i i think this sort of makes sense the norm specter man delivering uh norm norm specter sort of basically made this statement about it uh saying that it was all like like top notch everyone tried their best to make it work but it just wasn't happening yeah um and so you sort of see this natural alliance forming with the greens and the ndp who's uh, policy agendas are more closely aligned. It was yeah, their it made sense. bases are probably more closely aligned at this point. I think the green. I, I said this last week. But I think the green base would have cried bloody murder. So it's not only the green base to consider, but the green caucus for that matter. But, but the green caucus. Yeah. So Andrew Weaver has two MPs who are apparently MLAs. fair or yes MLAs who are apparently fairly like green. Yeah. Um, I, I use that as a coded word for hippies. Genuine political ecologist is the way you could put it, but yeah. Um, so the idea that he 100% has the reins here is false. Yeah. Because of the fact that the margins here are literally a single person. Well, I mean, like, at that point, you're almost like, would it be better for those people to, like, go join the NDP at that point and destroy yeah, exactly. the Green Party behind them. Like Absolutely. that would that would kill the Green Party, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so anyway. if you're one of Weaver's newly elected MLAs and Weaver says, guys, we're going here, 
and you and your buddy are on board, you can make the yeah. NDP majority government. So uh, the agreement came out today. Correct. Uh, and I want to talk about two points that, or yeah, I'll say three points that I noticed. Four uh, points. Out <laughs> of four points. Inflation. Uh, I don't know if you have anything you, you want to talk about. But uh, for me, it was, first of all, obviously the environmental points uh, that were part of the agreement. Uh, the carbon price is going up $5 a year. It, there's no until it's they're going up five dollars a year for the term of the term of the agreement just for four years in theory though i think everyone's sort of guessing it won't la- actually last that long um and also uh that there will be rebates now so perhaps they're canceling some of those income tax breaks and doing it in rebate form instead you want to explain what rebate form is yeah sure so uh in bc what they've opted for is a revenue neutral carbon tax in the sense that as, as they raise carbon tax revenue they cut income tax uh to compensate uh, in Alberta, they have not done that. They collect the carbon tax revenue, and then they give a lot of it back to as means-tested rebates. So basically, if you make you know under a certain amount, uh, you get a certain amount back. And it turns out like most households in Alberta, I think, get the full rebate of like four hundred some dollars. And the idea is that you shift your consumption to lower carbon goods so that you benefit as much as possible from the rebate you get back, so that you come out financially ahead. So I, it does seem like that's the approach that the BC NDP and Greens want to take. I personally think it is a better approach and that um, if you let the income tax shift approach last for like the run of, of however long you have your carbon tax, then at the end of the day, your revenues are actually going to be lower than they would have been otherwise, which for me as a big government socialist is bad. But uh, others may disagree. Uh, I should clarify also that BC does have a, a rebate system. It's just more uh, targeted to low income than the Alberta one, which sort of covers your, your middle class as well. So so basically what happened is the... Let, let's talk more broadly about the agreement. Yes. But, oh, yeah. But I, I got to do... I, I was going to go through my, my points. So that was that was the carbon tax bit. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Okay. And the other one's on uh, indigenous rights, which uh, was actually, I don't know if you saw that section, but it was basically like a pretty staunch commitment to implementing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Call to Actions, and the Tilikwatin, I really can't pronounce that word, it is spelled in a very difficult way, so apologies if I've butchered that. A Supreme Court case. You so, have. Um, you have. I certainly that. have. Uh, but yeah, so that that was, I think, like a very staunch commitment to Indigenous rights that made its way into that agreement that I'm really happy to see. Um, and also, the third one was in the legislature. It does seem like the Greens are going to get their official party status. You're not going to mention. Well, you you go ahead. You're not going to mention proportional representation. Oh yes, right. The referendum. I kind of forgot. Yeah, that's that'll happen. That, so. seem, that seems like a big one. Yeah, it does. Um, that I believe it's a, a referendum on proportional representation, again, Yeah. with the details to be worked out. Um, more significantly than sort of the weeds that Laurent's mentioning, I, I would say... <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. I, I would say is sort of the framework of the agreement, I think, is... Fairly yeah, significant. Maybe I buried the lead a little here. <laughs> yeah, this is the more important <laughs> yeah. aspect of it. Is that the agreement itself is to for the Greens to support the NDP on supply and confidence motions for up to four or for four years. Um, the significant aspect of this is that it's only on supply and confidence motions. What this means is that the Liberals, uh, if if this agreement goes forward. The liberals are given a fair amount of leeway in terms of what they can introduce and what can be voted on by a majority. NDP? No, I mean the liberals. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, so the liberals will be able to introduce motions, and if they can get the Greens on side, then legislation will... Well, they can introduce motions, but they don't have the right to introduce money bills because they're not the government. Correct, but... That's like a fairly significant constraint. It, it is, but motions as well as private members' bills, the same, I'm, I'm presuming that the... Uh, the rules are the same. I think they are. Approximately the same. And it also means that uh, NDP legislation beyond the priorities discussed in the agreement yeah. still have to find partnership. Yeah. Um, the other aspect of this is the fact that the numbers are so damn narrow makes for a great degree People of instability. People are going to, to camp out in the legislature, essentially. Like, literally, if one person on the NDP side gets, like, hospitalized level sick... Yeah. Guess what? You better hope they're hospitalized in Victoria and can be wheeled <laughs> into the legislature. <laughs> like, do you know what? They actually used to do that in the UK, like, in the 70s, during, like, those, like, thin labor minorities. Uh, they would, like, literally wheel gurneys in. I absolutely believe it. Yeah. Um, because... That can determine your government. Absolutely. If it's, if it's on a confidence motion, then yep. 
your government having a margin of one means that no one can travel. Like we've, we've talked about this before, like the practical side of this is no one can travel, no one can do anything, you have to stay in Ottawa, everyone's going to be on lockdown. And the stupid part is and because like, you have to be on election readiness and you can't be in your writing. Which is, and then the, the guy who's running for the nomination in the other party, or the woman who's running for the nomination in the other party, isn't out there knocking on doors, collecting memberships. Like it, it, You're just sitting there sweating bullets as other people get ready to take your job. So, so it makes for a ridiculous sort of stalemate almost even even if the well when um the greens and the ndp get together um it will be a very very tense time in terms of politics it'll be fun uh to zoom out one more level and to talk about the process of this so what's important to understand right now is the way the sort of westminster system works is that the government which is to say the clark government is able to continue, quote-unquote, governing up until the day ah, yes. right. that she presents herself to Parliament and loses confidence in the Parliament. Yeah. As the party with the most seats, she still has the government. Her government has not dissolved. So she will go until... The speculation is either a few weeks or as late as September 30th, depending on how brutal she decides to be with this. Yeah. And how how much she really pushes to try and find sort of an exit strategy. Um, where up until... At the latest, September 30th, because that's when the government basically runs out of money, um, they will be able to go to the House of Commons and test confidence. When they test confidence... They will presumably fail, and that is when the Greens and the NDP will be able to take over. Yeah. It's not until confidence is tested. Yeah. And Kirsty Clark has been very clear she on this. She could have resigned. She could have resigned. Yeah. She could have folded government and then handed the reins over to the lieutenant governor. Yeah. Lieutenant. Or <laughs> Canadians. Yeah. Uh, to the lieutenant governor. But she has not done this, and this is not that unusual when a party wins the most seats that they go to that they you go may as well. on. I think you, to test just, the confidence of the house. She just wants them to pull the trigger and see if they actually have the stones to do it. Um, so let's talk about potential sort of wrinkles in that plan. One of which, as we mentioned, is as the majority is a single seat, um, it could if they are Ooh, able right. to seduce a single member from presumably the NDP, that will change everything. Well, yeah. So you could either get an NDP member to join the party or to resign your seat. Yeah. So if an NDP member resigns their seat, say for a plush appointment somewhere, I feel like it takes a real lack of integrity to do that. On the part, on someone's part. I mean, there are precedents <laughs> there for this are in absolute, Canadian politics, but those people typically have either been characterized by you leave Belinda being, alone, being dying in the case of Chuck Cadman, or uh, being people of quite low integrity. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know, but that could certainly could happen. But uh, I, I would be surprised. The other thing is the speaker, which we talked we touched yes. on last week when when uh, David was here. So let, let's start with the numbers. If the Greens and the NDP form government, how many seats are they going to have in the legislature? They're going to have a grand total of uh, 44, 45. I actually forgot how many seats the NDP won. 42, I think. It's going to be 43 total, I believe. Well, if with the Speaker. No, because the 44 is a majority. they got to have at least 44. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. so they're going to have 44. Yeah, they have enough for a bare majority so, with a Speaker. Yeah, so it's 41 and then plus 3. And then the Liberals are going to have 43. Yeah. And so the question is, where does the Speaker come from? And this has literally created a cottage industry in Canadian politics, speculating as to, like, what happens if no one appoints a Speaker? What happens if... Any any series of events. So sort of the, the broader context is that the Speaker, by convention... Well, not not by convention. By standing order, does not vote unless he's breaking a tie. And then votes to continue debate. Um, Or preserve the status quo. Preserve the status quo is more important. Yes, because it covers a broader range of topics. So the status quo is interpreted when a bill is young. A bill is moving and keeps moving. To keep it moving. 
but at the end, the status quo is interpreted to be w- without this bill. Right. So preserving the status quo for society. Yeah. So it changes over the course of the stages of the bill. But what this means is if the speaker is the person holding the majority, that is in fact inconvenient for the government. Yes. So the lib or sorry the NDP and the Greens are going to want the speaker to come from the Liberals. Yeah. I think and this is the the rumor mill right now is that the current Liberal speaker is quite happy in that position and is not a huge huge fan of Christy Clark. So might be induced to stay on as speaker. Uh, that would probably be the most stable outcome for BC. It would probably allow it to have the most functional government uh, of all the sort of combinations on offer. So I think there are like patriotic quote unquote reasons for her to do that. Uh, we'll see. I, we, we, can't, we don't really know, but uh, I think it'll be pretty interesting kind of no matter how you slice it. Uh, you can't force someone to be speaker. So uh, yeah, no, it'll be interesting. Anything else to say on BC? That's it. Uh, there's also a Nova Scotia election going on. Uh, we can talk about it later. I, no, Etienne doesn't really care about maritime politics, so maybe we won't. Uh, as, it, as it currently stands, uh, I, I, I have all day for maritime politics. Let, I love me, maritime politics. Let me politics, tell you how many that. Nova Scotia premiers I can name. Can you name the current one? Nope. Oh, my God. I, I recognize the name. I would recognize the name. Okay. Give, and me, give me a hint. Give me a hint. Okay, so Stephen, give, give McNeil's, Stephen McNeil's liberals are oh, currently... You, you ruined at, it. Yeah, you sorry. ruined it. You, I, I you ruined yourself, there. Etienne. Uh, Stephen McNeil's Liberals are currently at 23 seats of the 26 they need for a majority. Uh, Jamie Bailey's PCs are at 19, a respectable, healthy uh, opposition. And the NDP, Gary Burrell, Reverend Gary's uh, NDP, is at nine seats, which is actually outperforming expectations, I think. Uh, so, so good on Reverend Gary for, for doing that. Um, he was sort of considered to be the sort of more left-wing pick at their uh, policy or their uh, leadership convention. So good, good on him. Cheers to Reverend Gary. Cheers to Reverend Gary. Um, also, there was an NDP leadership debate, uh, the federal party, this last weekend. Uh, just to reiterate, just in case you guys did not catch this from the episode a couple weeks ago, I am working on one of those campaigns, and thus we are not talking about the federal NDP leadership race. That being said, I am going to take five seconds to say I love Pat Stogren being in the debate. I mean, I think we And both, throwing uh, quite the wrinkle into the sort of classic political debate. He, he adds a lot of character, a lot of flavor to things. That's a very nice way. No, I, he was fun. Uh, but yeah, we, basically, just, just so you guys know, and in case you didn't catch it the last night, I'll probably give one one more of these disclaimers as, as things go on. We're just not going to touch it. It's too awkward. Sorry. Uh, I would love to talk about it. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards. Uh, we'll see. Many years from now. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, that'll, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on this thrilling ride with us. And uh, just remember, uh, Andrew Shearer loves feet. All right, have a great week, everyone. <laughs> settle, settle down there. I am, uh, of course, as always, in charge of the standard disclaimer of saying, if you uh, enjoy our podcast, please uh, rate and review them on iTunes. And then the other thing you can do is check out Looney Politics. Um, they are a Canadian news source um, and one that uh, generously supports us. Check them out, buy a membership, uh, have a look. Now that's all from me. Okay, bye everyone. Have a good weekend.